Well, good evening. Um, I suppose first, I'm going to one-up John. John's uh, Christianless, faithless cruise uh, is probably one-upped by Deborah and myself. We, we had the privilege of being able to go to America uh, into a, a place called the Teton National Park on a cowboy four-day, three-night covered wagon safari. And, uh, and you can just imagine the scene in the middle of nowhere, uh, in the middle of God's creation. Um, how do you get involved with faith there? How do you talk about faith to people you've never seen before? People who are, funnily enough, not English. And, and as I kept telling them, they're only on loan. They've been away for 200 years. We will be having them back soon. Um, well, we didn't have to worry about it because the six foot four cowboy who ran the show, who'd got a real six shooter with real bullets in it, made the statement before lunch uh, on the first day that they are Christian people and every day there is a blessing. You don't have to get involved if you don't want to. And if you don't want to get involved, please just sit quietly. So we were on home territory, I suppose. Uh, and it was a really uplifting thing to see this great big man who looked like he hadn't bathed for a couple of days. And that's probably because he hadn't bathed for a couple of days. And all of his team uh, who, were, who were able to sit there or stand there with us and give praise to, to the Lord in the middle of a spectacular place in his creation. Um, one or two of you know, uh, and the majority of you don't know, that a lot of the preparation for this took place last night. Uh, Deborah and myself went to a beer festival. Uh, and that's probably not the best place. I mean, as a former rugby player, drinking on a Friday night or uh, on a Saturday night before a game um, was banned. And we went to listen to some live music outside uh, to taste a couple of unusually named glasses of beer. Uh, and to meet friends that we hadn't seen for, for several months. I have to say that, uh, and this is by no way judging people, uh, there were a number of people who were there to dress as inappropriately as humanly possible, uh, to use language that really uh, would make rugby players blush, uh, and there were a number of rugby players there, uh, and to try and consume as much alcohol as physically possible in the shortest period of time. Well, what's this got to do with Hosea 14? or uh, the book of Hosea. Well, if we looked at it, folk were, were indulging in um, inappropriate activity. They were performing in ways they shouldn't have performed. And at the end of the night, the security guard, the final arbiter of what went on, pushed everybody out. And within the sake of a few minutes, the place was empty and people had to go home and explain to their mums and dads, wives and husbands, why they were dressed as fairies, why they were dressed as elves, and why they were in such a, uh, a, a poor state of, uh, of, of, of soberness. Um, over the past weeks, as you, you well know, um, we've been looking at the work of the prophet as he wrestles not only with his own domestic problems, but also the problems of Israel, uh, problems Israel has brought upon herself because of this uh, disloyalty and journey away from God. This evening we'll be looking at the final chapter of the book of Hosea, chapter 14, verses uh, 1 to 9, which starts on page 909 in your pew Bibles, and it may be helpful in a few minutes if we turn to those. I thought uh, that as it was holiday time, and many of us have been away uh, for a well-earned summer, summer holiday, I'd try and capture the main thrust of the book of Hosea, 
uh, that has been covered over the past weeks so that we can all start on the same page. Um, the prophet Hosea, uh, uh, or the setting of the book rather, is in the northern kingdom, Israel, up to the end of the reign of King Hosea, uh, which is 722 BC, and then the subsequent fall of the kingdom and the exile of the people. Hosea lived in very turbulent times following the reign of King Jeroboam. And at that time, kings in the northern kingdom were falling like nine pins. Either through intrigue or murder, murder, four of them were assassinated in a 20-year period, another two in a period of seven months. So not a good place to be a king, I think you would agree. Uh, and it says, indeed, these earthly kings considered a rebellion, were considered a rebellion by God, as stated in chapter 13, verse 11. So in my anger, I gave you a king, and in my wrath, I took him away. And this resulted in the demise of six kings in the space of 38 years, which obviously you'd appreciate created a very unsettled kingdom. Hosea's criticism of Israel focuses strongly on the false religious practices, particularly the worship of uh, the god Baal. Uh, for example, Hosea specifically picks out the sanctuaries for particular attention, notably Bethel, which actually means the house of God, which he renamed Beth-Avon, or house of inequity, and Gilgal and refers to calf idols, sacred pillars, self-mutilation in worship and, and temple prostitution. A world of sacrifice and excess uh, and religious feasts is visibly displayed. In chapter 1-3, the metaphors of prostitution and adultery are used to depict Israel's unfaithfulness and worship of the god Baal. The same metaphor is used in chapter 4, verse 14, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. So this is a very unsavoury place. I'm not suggesting that uh, the uh, beer festival was uh, similarly unsavoury. Indeed, Hosea's own marriage to Goma, an unfaithful, adulterous woman, became a symbol of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. The forceful command from God in chapter 1, verse 1, go take a prostitute and have a prostitute's children, places Hosea at the very centre of the action, so to speak, and identifies the problem facing not only him, God's chosen prophet, but importantly, Israel, God's chosen people. The term woman, women of harlotry is now directed at Israel, cast as a mother, turned prostitute, identifying the other gods as her lovers, and especially Baal. However, as we examine the book, we can see that Hosea's marriage to Goma is also used as a metaphor of a loving, caring, forgiving God, who is prepared to accept and importantly forgive a sinful, unfaithful people, regardless of what they have done, and as Hosea takes Gomer into his, uh, as his wife and takes her into his house, gives her protection, safety and comfort, our loving, caring, forgiving God will one day take his people back into his protection. Uh, but as I say, we'll look at that slightly later. As we continue through the book, the reasons why God loses patience with his people starts to become apparent. In chapter 4, the Lord lays charges against Israel as if they were in a court of law. For example, 4.1 starts... Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you. Now, I don't know about you, but hearing that would probably want to wake me up, but we'll carry on. And importantly, these charges are not simply a summons to attend court for, the, uh, for exceeding the speeding limit. These people had, had not simply forgotten to buy their television licence, no matter how easy that is to do nowadays, and you can do that on the internet, we keep being told. Their crimes are fundamentally wrong and stroke at the very heart of the covenant between them and their creator. Secondly, when we look at who's committed these crimes, the people cannot look over their neighbour's back garden, back garden wall with a smug expression on their face, wringing their hands, and accuse someone else. 
They're all in it together. The priests are as guilty as everyone else. They have failed to do their job and they have failed to spread the true word of God to the people. And this is because they've forgotten his law and have been thriving on religious affluence, on the religious affluence of the day, resulting from greater prosperity and more sacrifices. The priests and now the leaders didn't stop there. Instead of being a controlling, guiding force within their community, they took part in licentious rituals of the other cults and that were starting to take control. And with friends like this at the top, you know, it's no wonder that the people drift away and start to lose their way. In chapter five, chapter five is the beginning of the end and the warning signals are starting to become apparent. Pressure and power is now starting to grow from outside. This, res this resulted in Israel getting involved in a number of political alliances to strengthen indiv the individual country's positions. And these signals, which may not have been obvious to the general population, were blindingly obvious to Isaiah. He knew that regardless of how many school playground friendships grew up and how many mates you had in your gang, the judgment that was coming would not be decided by the size of your army or the skill of your generals. The judgment that was on its way was being directed by a general that could not be outflanked. And despite the attempted political solutions, Israel's crimes could not be paid for by political means. This judgment was unavoidable. It would be painful and they had no way of stopping it. The rebellion and apparent stupidity of these people seems to know no bounds. In chapter 6, they make the claim that they have returned to God. 6.1, come let us return to the Lord. However, they seem to forget yet again who they're dealing with. And God sees straight through their lies and their superficial repentance. In 6.4 he says, what can I do with Ephraim, referring to Israel? Your love is like the morning mist and disappears. The time when Israel is going to have to face up to what she's been doing wrong is almost upon them. The people are aware that the warning trumpet is about to sound. Uh, and as was mentioned previously, the eagle is over the house of the Lord. And these words do not simply refer to the priests or to the leaders. They refer to the whole population. They've all sinned and now is the time for them all to pay. Let's try and consider what this actually means. Think about this for an example. You're invited to a theatre. You've been given the best seats in the house. The owner of the theatre has laid on a lavish supper before the performance. And as you enter the theatre, you're welcomed by waiters and waitresses whose sole purpose it is, is to make sure your evening is a complete 100% success. They show you to your table. They wait on your hand and foot. They give you the finest wine, the finest food. They lead you to the royal box where you're seated and where you can see the whole performance in glorious technicolour. All you have to do is turn up on time, show some respect and be grateful. But guess what? You can't be bothered. You turn up late. You ignore the waiting staff and you complain the wine's too dry and the food's too dull. When you get to the royal box, that's too small and you would have preferred to have been sitting on the other side of the theatre. Well, brothers and sisters, don't be surprised if the owner uh, decides that you're not welcome and asks you to leave. And he may even ensure that you're airborne as you leave the building. And this is just the situation Israel was about to find herself in. Their special elect status which set them apart from the other nations, was about to be taken away. They were about to be asked to leave. In verse 8, 8, Now Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations, a worthless things. They were not just biting the hand that feeds them. They were attempting to eat the whole arm without even rolling the sleeve up first. And they were on the road to destruction. I wonder how many of you... Uh, excuse me. 
Hosea's message and warnings made him very unpopular, uh, in a similar fashion to Jeremiah before him. And like Jeremiah, Hosea's protests in an intercession turned into a prayer of judgment. 9.14, give them, O Lord, what, the, what you will give them, wounds that miscarry and breasts that are dry. And things are now starting to pick up pace. As we move along the road, the warning signs are all in place. They have a traffic policeman, Hosea, pointing the route and, and the speed limit. They read the highway code, the law, and they know how to parallel park, but they disregard all of these indicators. That tight turn in the road is now very close and they're reaching a point where they will not be able to negotiate it. And then finally, bang, they hit the barrier. Screeching of brakes, dust and broken glass. One last look in the rearview mirror and over they go, out the door over the edge. Wherever they are heading, it's the wrong way. It's the end of the journey, and it's a journey they need not have started. That they were warned not to travel, but like all unruly children, they knew best. Or as Hosea puts it in 13.15, an east wind from the Lord will come, blowing him from the desert. His springs will fail, and his well will dry up. Well, in all tearjerker films, that would have been the end. The credits would now be rolling, and a tearful audience would have made its way, be making its way home, and with the time it takes to get back home, they would have forgotten the story and the people in it. But this is no theatrical performance. Sadly, this was really happening, and this really did happen, to real people. People who were chosen by their creator uh, to be his special people. People he loved and cared for. People he rescued and nurtured. People he protected in battle. And people he led to their own planet promised land. People, brothers and sisters, just like us. But importantly, this is not the end. And I'm not sure about you, but this is the bit in every story in the Bible that sends shivers down my neck and gives me cause to reflect. Every day I have to consider the ways I transgress against God. The times I forget to pray and just how ungrateful I really am. Because this is the part when we get to see how bad we can be or how bad those people could be and just how forgiving, loving and caring our God can be. I wonder how many of you have children had a toy um, which was designed as a test of skill. You know the one, it's a, a long wire connected to a battery and you have a hoop that you move along and you try not to touch the two parts together or a buzzer will sand, sound. Or perhaps you played snakes and ladders, constantly trying to get to the end but often sliding down the snake and having to start uh, again. And the path to the end of both games, one which a steady hand is needed and the other where your fate depends on the roll of a dice, perhaps a clumsy description of the relationship between Israel and God. The buzzer has been sounding for a while for Israel and the people were sliding back down the snake as they'd done many times before. And guess what? Here again, uh, God is offering another chance. In chapter 14, the climax, climax of this book, God offers offers of salvation for an unworthy, ungrateful people shine through. Throughout the history of Israel, uh, God provided for his people as he does for us every day, picking them up when they fell down, being a safe pair of hands they needed to point them in the right direction. He released them from slavery several times, for example, Exodus 12:51, and on that very day the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt, provided them with food and water, Exodus 16, verse 13. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp, which eventually became manna. Again here, in, 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 in verse four, chapter 14, God is offering a step up, uh, is having to step, offering to step up to the mark and give them another chance. And it's important to note, the book of Hosea is not a continuous narrative, but a collection of addresses 
delivered to the nation. And as I said before, people don't like to be told they're wrong. They don't like to be shown the correct path, and they always know best. Isaiah kept warning his people that if they kept doing the things they were doing and kept ignoring the signs following this road to this, uh, the road to destruction would follow. And you would have thought people who had been exiled on a number of occasions for very similar failings would know better. In the same way Jeremiah had warned his people before uh, for sinning against God, the writing was on the wall. Political and military powers were massing and they were ripe for the taking. Hosea was now pleading with his people to repent. But guess what? When they should have been falling to their knees asking for forgiveness, they were creating graven images and indulging in sinful living. Their threatened peril should have driven them to repent. They should have put the car in reverse or pulled over to the side and accepted the speeding fine from Hosea, that Hosea was giving them. It should have been apparent to them that it was their own guilt that was the cause of their stumbling. If they had realised this, they would have been, it would have been their first step to reconciliation with God. Hosea has been warning them throughout the book about their fate, and now he was pointing to the way back, but was still warning them, however, that their return must be sincere and heartfelt. There could be no half measures or false attempts uh, as they tried before, in verse, as it mentioned in verse 6. Hosea was telling them to take, the, to take their sinfulness to the Lord in words of prayer, words of confession, words of remorse, with contrite hearts. He warns them that no man or country can save them. Verse 14.3 Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our God is what our own hands have made. Hosea was telling them that there was only one way. They should, now put their faith in, they should not put their faith in anyone else but God. He shows them that God is offering yet another hand of friendship and a way back. I will hear their way, heal their waywardness and love them freely. Verse 4. Let's try and examine the picture Hosea is trying to draw here. In verse 5, uh, 1, I will, I will be like the Jew of Israel. Now, the Jew uh, he's referring to is the same Jew that uh, uh, is the same stuff that's uh, a bit of an irritation first thing on a cold morning uh, on your car in this country. And in country like ours where water is plentiful, it, as I said, it's a bit of an irritation. But in countries where climate uh, uh, and, uh, is hot and they're water starved, uh, the, the Jew first thing in the morning is seen as an essential method of irrigating the crops. And to agricultur an agricultural people would have seen this as a very important symbol, a symbol that their God is ready to ensure that they have the things they need to live their lives. Verse 5 continued, He will blossom like the lily, like the cedar of Lebanon. Now the cedar was the tallest and strongest tree in the region, an essential component for building their homes, uh, and, important, and important civil buildings. And as well as practical uses, cedar held significant place in their history. Cedar was used for the roof and linings of King Solomon's temple uh, in 1 Kings 6 8. So he built the temple, roofing, roofing it with beams and cedar planks. And in verse 15, he lined the, interior, lined the interior walls with cedar. So this tree was important both practically and symbolically. It was a sign of strength, a sign of stability. I suppose it was a sign of their history and a connection through the temple to God. So using this simple, God is again telling them that if they return to him, he will love and care for them. He will be there for them. He will resume the place that he has always had as a strong pillar supporting his people. Verse 6, his splendour will be like an olive tree. Again, another important, if not vital element uh, in the lives of these people. 
The olive was a vital part of this agricultural people's, people's lives. As well as food and oil for cooking, it was used for lighting and the manufacture of soap. In verse 8, we see God's desire to wipe the land clear of the fertility cult has led him to use risky language. This is the first time in the Old Testament, sorry, this is the only time in the uh, Old Testament that God is referred to as a tree, associating himself with the very material that they used to build these, to make these graven images and other blasphemous uh, paraphernalia. The word fruitfulness on, uh, only serves to strengthen the answer. The covenant with God, the covenant with God carried with it the responsibility to produce the fruit of full obedience to him. The productivity, became the productivity became impossible when Ephraim, Israel, forgot the source of the fruit. He borrowed the enemy's sword to make the final thrust and in the last, li the last line probably sums up the whole message of the book. God is ask asking who they think the true source of Israel's livelihood is. And it was the wrong answer to this question that led to re religious harlotry, political instability, international chicanery, uh, that are Hosea's major themes. This is God, the creator of everything, almost pleading with them to come home. Now, I don't think you have to be a candidate for mastermind to understand this picture. If this is not clear and unambiguous, I don't know what is. Our loving, caring God is simply saying, come back to me, be my children, and I will once again be your father. But finally, in verse 9, the final warning is offered again, written in very unambiguous language. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. There's no problem there then. Simple and in a fashion of all well-written reports, accurate, brief and clear. It really is the Lord's way or the highway. In simple words, Hosea is telling them to use, their, to use the brains they've been given and asking them, if they are going to be righteous and walk in the ways of the Lord or stupid and stumble from the path. Now in the way of all good stories, is there a happy ending? Well, unfortunately, no, there isn't. In 721, the final territory in the Northern Kingdom, some area was captured, its people were exiled into slavery and the Northern Kingdom uh, ended. So very similar to the beer festival last night, the ground was cleared. Now, I suppose it's at this point that Hosea Certainly I would be tempted, but Hosea could have said, I told you so. So where does that leave us? And I'd like you to consider a couple of things before you leave here tonight. Firstly, are we a people, a congregation, a church that lives up to, or at least tries to live up to, God's expectations of us? Or do we make a veiled attempt a couple of times a week or once a week uh, to look like followers of Christ, but really in the dark hours, in the middle of the night, when we're at home on our own, we know the truth, uh, because it looks good to other people to come to church on Sunday, but nobody else is ever going to find out. Well, I'll pace you back to, uh, to verse 6, uh, to, to, to chapter 6. Secondly, are a church that prays and places its trusts and problems at the foot of the cross. Because remember, we weren't given manna or quail, we were given the greatest gift anyone could give, uh, give or be given. The gift that was handed to us free of charge on the day that our Lord Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross, abandoned by his friends, insulted, brutalised and finally killed because the people knew better and the priests didn't want their power threatened. Brothers and sisters, we have a, a, an advantage over many people in the Bible and that's because we have the Bible. We have the word of God free and readily available and all we have to do is read it and to try and live, live our lives by it. 
we have the opportunity to speak to God whenever we want to. Not through a prophet, but as a child speaks to a loving father. And guess what? He listens. And as any loving, as any loving father would do, he knows our pain holds us in the darkest time. And as I think has become obvious from the book of Hosea, despite what we do, he will always offer us a way back. Amen. We just pray if we can. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we're able to come together in this place and, and listen to your word. We give you thanks for the Bible. We give you thanks that you give us the opportunity to speak to you as, as children to a loving Father. And we pray that as we leave here this week, we're able to live up to your expectations of us, live up to your name in the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.